Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Beginning in the 1960s and 70s, there was a concerted push by economists and policymakers to transform the nation's family farms into large-scale industrial agriculture operations. One of those economists, Dr. John Eichert, is our guest today. John is an agricultural economist and professor emeritus at the University of Missouri. In 1970, after earning his Ph.D., John began working as an agricultural extension economist, first at North Carolina State University and then Oklahoma State University. In the 1980s, he was at the University of Georgia when the farm foreclosure crisis hit. It was then that he began to see that there was something deeply wrong with what he and other economists had been advising farmers to do, namely to either get big or get out. John underwent a conversion of sorts and in 1989 moved to the University of Missouri where he began to focus his research and education on sustainable agriculture. He retired in 2000, but his work to foster a more intelligent and sustainable farming economy didn't stop. Since then, he's written six books, including most recently in 2012, The Essentials of Economic Sustainability. I met John this summer at the Organization for Competitive Markets conference in Kansas City, where he gave a truly rousing speech. You can watch that speech online. We'll be sure to post a link to it on the show page for today's episode, which you can find on our website at ILSR.org. John joins us today from his home in Fairfield, Iowa. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very glad to be with you and look forward to visiting with your listeners. Well, it's wonderful to have you on, and I'm really glad to have a chance to talk with you about the nature of what's happened to agriculture and the intersection of economics and policy and the nature of community. Uh, I understand that you grew up on a farm, a dairy farm in Iowa, and then went off to university and decided to study the economics of agriculture. Um, and coming out of university, then went on to work for agricultural extension services, where, as I understand it, a, a part of that job is helping to advise the farmers in, in the region of that university about what they should do, how they should manage their farms in ways that would be economically successful. So tell me a little bit about what you were doing in the 1970s and what it was that you were um, telling farmers to do. First of all, I, I did grow up on a small dairy farm. It happened to be in southwest Missouri at that time rather than Iowa, so I'm originally from Missouri. But after I got my Ph.D., then I had a position, so I always had positions in, uh, in extension, uh, and I was a livestock marketing specialist for the first half of my 30-year academic career. So that meant, as you suggested, that uh, our responsibility was to go out and work with farmers and to help them devise marketing strategies and make marketing decisions. I, I taught such things as futures markets and options and forward pricing, and I was a person, you know, that did the market outlook for cattle and hogs and, and livestock in general and meats where we try to analyze, uh, you know, what trends were going into the future. But we also dealt with farmers on general kind of business management strategies, and we saw marketing as part of the broader sort of business management of farming. And as you suggested, kind of the, the uh, basic theme of that time, and it still is in many agricultural universities, is that, that farming has to be a business. If, if farmers think it's a way of life, it's kind of old-fashioned or it's out of date, and so they have to kind of focus on the economic bottom line. And you often hear that 
from back in the 1970s and 1980s was the period of time when we had expanding export markets and and farmers were expanding production. It was very profitable in the 70s, as it has been up until the last few years now. And so farmers were told, well, you, you need to expand to get bigger, get out, was the saying a lot of people had. And that's because what we were promoting was kind of an industrial model of agriculture. We said you need to specialize, move away from diversified family farms, specialize in particular commodities or one or two commodities. And then when you specialize, then you can standardize and mechanize the process. And the chemical fertilizers and pesticides and antibiotics and livestock allowed farmers to have much more control over that production process. So you could kind of write a recipe for how to grow a crop or how to grow a hog. So you standardize, and then once you've done that, you've simplified the management process so that you can consolidate into larger and larger farming operations. You, that's what we saw. You know, that's that was the get bigger, get out. You have to follow that industrial model, and you'll become more economically efficient. I bought into it, and I think a lot of people still do, uh, under the idea that if we made agriculture more efficient, then we'd reduce the cost of food and we'd make good food affordable for everyone. And and I think that's the fundamental flaw in the industrialization of agriculture. It has tremendous negative impacts on rural communities and family farms and on the environment. But the most important thing, it, it failed, you know, to provide good food for everyone. We have a higher percentage of people that are food insecure in this country today than we had back in the 1960s before we started this last round of industrialization. We made food cheaper for the people that could afford it and for the average consumer, but we were not getting food to the people that need it most because it's not a problem of food costs being too high. It's a problem of unequal distribution of income and access to food. The reason you have food deserts in the city is not profitable for the large industrial or, or uh, corporate food retailers to put uh, products into those markets at a reasonable price. So we didn't feed the hungry. And in addition to that, you know, the food that they're getting, and it's not just because it's highly processed junk food, but the food they're getting is, is not healthy. We didn't anticipate all those things, but I contend that that was a, a, an outcome. It took me many years to come to that conclusion, but that was an outcome of agricultural industrialization, and so I had to do something different. Let me ask you a little bit about what happened in the 1980s and uh, what it was that led you to first start to question whether there was something wrong with the system that farmers were being told to follow. Uh, as I suggested, their farmers were expanding production during the 70s. That was, you know, farm fence row to fence row and tear out the fence rows because we were going to feed the world. And that was the, the Nixon butts era in terms of farm policy. And, and so we were loaning a lot of money to developing countries through various international aid programs, which gave them money to buy food. And, and the global economy was expanding during the 70s. So it was a time of great kind of optimism in agriculture. Uh, unfortunately, at that time, it was also a time when fuel prices were high, inflation was high, which meant interest rates were high. So uh, farmers out here and also cost of farm inputs were going up. So so farmers, following the advice of the so-called experts in terms of expanding, many of them borrowed large amounts of money at record high interest rates in order to take advantage of what we were seeing as this opportunity for profitability in the future of agriculture. 
but then when we got into the 1980s, we had to change the administration. Um, Ronald Reagan came in as president and said, we're going to bring inflation under control, tightened up on the money supply. It put the country into a domestic recession. That turned into a global recession, and all those export markets dried up. And then farmers were caught with these huge uh, debts at record high interest rates, and the commodity prices fell because of the drying up, the loss of export markets. And so they, farmers were out here, they simply couldn't pay those debts. They couldn't even pay the interest on it, let alone the principal on it. And so we had farm foreclosures and bankruptcies were kind of regular fare on the network news programs at that time. And at that time, I moved to from Oklahoma State University, where I'd been a livestock marketing specialist and working with the big feedlots out in the out in the Oklahoma and Texas, out in the Oklahoma Panhandle. Uh, I moved to the University of Georgia, and I was head of the Extension Agricultural Economics Department there. And it was the responsibility of the people in our department to go out and work with these farmers and try to help them figure out we have them bring their records in. And we sat down right across the table from them and tried to go through their records and, you know, see how much equity, if any equity, they had left and try to help them find some way to survive financially or at least to get out of farming while they still had, you know, some equity left. Or at least, as I like to say, you know, at least tried to talk them out of committing suicide because farm suicides were were not uncommon at that time as these farmers were losing their farms. And so that's what made me really begin to think. And I began to understand that the farmers that were in the biggest trouble at that time were the farmers that had been following what we so-called experts had been advising them to do. Um, they had gone ahead and we said, you don't really have a, an economic problem or a, a, a profit problem. You have a cash flow problem. So if you borrow money to make the cash flow, then if things continue to be profitable, then you can make off the cash flow payments. You can pay off the debts and everything will be all right. But I saw that that wasn't working, and it sure wasn't working for the farmers. And then I saw that it wasn't working for the rural communities that depended upon those farm families, you know, not just to buy fertilizer and feed and agriculture supply, but those families were the people that shopped on the main street of the small towns. They were the people that bought the shoes and the clothes and the cars and those communities. And when those farm families couldn't make a living anymore, then the people that depended upon those couldn't make a living. And so we saw rural communities all across the country. I saw it in Georgia, but it happened in Missouri and Iowa and everywhere. These rural communities really suffered because it takes people to support communities, not just production and not just agricultural profits. And then I really become concerned about the negative environmental uh, impacts of industrial agriculture, that farming fence row to fence row and and the soil erosion was rampant, and we were polluting air and water with agricultural chemicals and biological waste out of the big feeding op- animal feeding operations. And so, you know, I just came to the conclusion that this kind of agriculture wasn't working, and it wasn't going to work in the future. And then, thankfully, the sustainable agriculture program was just coming on the scene then. And as you mentioned, I had an opportunity then to get a, a grant from uh, USDA in Washington on the, the, the first sustainable agriculture research and education program that they had funded uh, was in 1988. And so that that allowed me to move, and I've been working on sustainable agriculture ever since. How, when you were looking around at what was happening and beginning to piece this together, that the economics didn't really make sense, that there were 
environmental costs, that there were huge social consequences for communities and for people. And you started talking to your colleagues and other people in the profession about what you were seeing and what you were concluding. How did they react? Well, at, at first, uh, like the University of Missouri and all the universities were saying, well, this is just sustainable agriculture. It's just another one of these passing fads out here. And uh, obviously, everything that we've been doing is sustainable because we're still doing it. And farmers still argue that, well, it's sustainable because we continue to do it up to now. Uh, so at first, when I went to the University of Missouri, I think they were just expecting me to, you know, develop a public relations program that basically said, well, everything we're doing here is sustainable, so we don't have to do anything different. And then as they began to discover that I was serious, <laughs> that I, I really thought we needed to recreate agriculture, that we need to move away from the industrial model and move toward what had been a very successful program in the 40s and 50s at the University of Missouri was a balanced farming program. I mean, it was about balancing, you know, making an economic living on the farm with the quality of life for the fi- for the family, uh, you know, buying washing machines, getting indoor plumbing, getting, you know, running water and things of that nature into the home. So it's about the quality of life but balanced with economic and then soil conservation with terracing and things of that nature. So it was the balance of taking care of nature and the quality of life and the economic dimensions of farming. So when I went to the University of Missouri, I thought, well, the University of Missouri has this history in balanced farming, so it'll be easy here to to sell this new sustainable agriculture program because that's what it's about. It's about taking care of the land, being a good, responsible member of the community, and then making a decent economic living for the family because that's what's necessary to sustain the productivity of the land over the long run. But whenever I started producing that idea, it was in conflict with industrialization. So pretty soon, you know, I could see that there was great resistance to what I really wanted to do. And I really ran into resistance when I started questioning kind of the industrial model of animal agriculture, the large-scale confinement animal feeding operations when premium standard farms, the big corporation at that time, it's changed hands several times since, wanted to bring an 80 sow uh, hog operation into North Missouri. That, that's the epitome of industrial agriculture. And I supported the people that were opposing that because I did a study comparing actual records of Missouri hog farmers with what they were proposing to employ the people they were employing and the incomes in these uh, these corporate hog operations. And I concluded we were going to displace three independent Missouri hog farmers for every job that was created in one of those corporate CAFOs. And so you can imagine in the backlash, the university was promoting this idea. So I became pretty unpopular there um, in the last five or six years that I was there. But I joined forces with uh, Dalrymple Marsh at that time at Lincoln University, which is the historic black institution in the state of Missouri. And they had a, a very good small farms program. And so we we basically combined the Lincoln University small farms program with the University of Missouri Sustainable Agriculture Program. And that gave us, you know, gave us both a solid footing to continue to do our work regardless of what the universities uh, really thought about what we're doing. And then I ended up in the last five years, I got a, uh, um, a $1.2 million Kellogg uh, Foundation grant to link sustainable agriculture with sustainable community development. But I did go ahead and retire as soon as I had 30 years in because I could retire without any penalties. But I, when I retired, I had no intention of just not doing anything. I wanted to 
continue to do my work in in a way that I wanted to do it. I want to return to some of the arguments that we hear for a an industrialized, uh, large-scale agribusiness kind of a system for producing our food. And one of the arguments is that it makes food less expensive. I mean, our food costs have certainly gone down in the U.S. quite a bit. I think there's something like half of, we spend half as much as we used to on food. Um, but I understand that you believe that there's a, a hidden cost to that. Can you talk about what that is? First of all, if we go back you know, the period of time when we were first beginning to industrialize agriculture, and there was a reduction in the percentage of income that we spent on food from, I think it was around 19% down to around 10%, but we had reached that basically by the late 1990s. And if you look back over the last 20 years, but a 20-year period between kind of the mid to late 90s and the, and the teens, the 20 teens, food prices actually went up faster than the overall inflation rate. And I think what we're seeing here is as we've had more con- uh, concentration consolidation in the food business, we have food retailers buying up food retailers and other food retailers and processors buying up other processors. To down, we're at, we have a handful of kind of large processors and retailers that basically dominate every sector of the agricultural economy today. And I think when you look at the price spreads, which is the difference between what the producers are getting and what the consumers are paying, you find that those price spreads have widened significantly. And that was a natural consequence of industrializing the food system, as you continue to, in this idea of of, uh, specialized, standardized, consolidate larger and larger operations, you eventually end up with large corporations that have the market power to enhance their profits, both at the expense of the consumer in terms of food prices then going up faster than inflation, but also in terms of the producer, the producer not realizing those higher prices. So I think it's a it's a fallacy to say that in the last 20 years that we've seen real advantages from the industrialization. And that's been one of the most rapid periods of industrialization in the food system. The problem was that when we were actually getting the gains in terms of the uh, reduction and and percentage that the average consumer spent on food, we still weren't getting food, good food, to the people that needed it most. You can go all the way back to the enclosures in the 1600s, and and hunger as we know it today really began whenever we began to rely solely on markets to make sure that everybody got enough food. The basic problem is is you have people within society that, that simply... The good people, they're equal dignity and worth, and they may be making great contributions to society in other ways, but they're simply not able to earn enough in terms of, of income. So we can't solve that problem by making food cheap. There was a, um, a global meeting of something like, uh, I can't remember now, 80 scientists or something like that from around the world, and they got together and concluded that, that obesity now is a is a a greater global food problem than is than is actual hunger. And everywhere around the world that we take this industrial model of agricultural production and industrial model of food production, we see the same sort of obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, the whole range of issues arise with it. And the United Nations studies and much of the rest of the world has already concluded that uh, that they don't really want and need industrial agriculture because 
according to the UN, various UN reports, between 70 and 80 percent of the people in the world today are not fed by industrial agriculture systems, but they're fed by basically what we would call subsistence farms, small family farms. We now know through the sustainable agriculture approaches such as permaculture, nature farming, agroecology, that we could increase yields on those farms, double or triple, some of the places even quadruple yields on those farms without adopting the industrial model. So that's the reason much of the rest of the world is resisting uh, genetically engineered foods and a whole range of industrial technologies because they simply have seen what happens in other parts of the world and they don't want their agriculture to go that way. It's a really striking statistic that, that 70 to 80 percent of the world's food is actually produced on family farms. I mean, because you, you know, that we've had this whole, whole idea that we had to, you know, have with this huge growing global population that we would have to have this big, large scale kind of industrial agriculture system the world over if we were going to have any hope of feeding people. But that, in fact, is, is completely not true. Right, and there's uh, several UN reports that have come out recently. 2016, there was one put together by what was called a, a panel of international experts on sustainability, um, and they reviewed over 350 uh, different uh, scientific studies that have been done in various places, and, and basically confirmed the indictment of industrial agriculture and talked about you know, the alternative system that was needed instead, you know, made the case that we didn't need industrial agriculture to feed the hungry and so on. And then another fallacy that you hear, oh, we're exporting about 20% of the food that we're producing in this country or 20% of our agricultural products go to elsewhere. And we say, okay, we're feeding the world. Well, we're not. There's less than 1% of the agri our agricultural exports go to the 19 countries that are the hungriest people in the, in the world today. Most of our exports are going to places like China and Korea and, and uh, India and places like that where, you know, where there's an increasingly affluent middle-class population. And what we're doing is shipping more high-protein foods to those increasingly affluent classes in the other, in the other places. We're not even feeding the hungry people in, their place, in those countries. What we are doing is allowing countries like China, who has this tremendous population of people, to, to provide let's say, meat for their, more meat for their increasingly affluent middle class there rather than taking land out of rice production and other basic production that's, that's feeding the hungry people in those countries. You're listening to Dr. John Eichert, an agricultural economist and professor emeritus at the University of Missouri. I'm Stacy Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back after a short break. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that we don't have any corporate sponsors who put ads on the show. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to carry ads from national and global companies. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots groups. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. That's ILSR.org. 
And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. One great thing you can do is to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings help us reach a wider audience, so it's hugely helpful when you do that. Thanks. I want to ask you as a, an economist something that I, I think is, I find s- sort of puzzling in a way, which is that the economic thinking behind this whole system was we'll create more efficient operations, we'll be able to have bigger output. And yet what you describe you know, is a system that has become less and less competitive, right? That there's this enormous consolidation of not only farms, but uh, most importantly at the processing and the retail level. It's, it's like a, a chokehold at this point. There are so few companies that control those parts of the sector. Farmers are getting less. Consumers are paying more. Competition is like the bedrock of, of economics. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm puzzled. How is it that economists didn't see this coming? And, you know, I, and, and why hasn't there been more of an about face? I think the economists should have seen it coming uh, back at least as soon as I did. You should have seen it sooner than I did. <laughs> you know, I think I was late in seeing it coming, but I kind of understand how people, you know, within the academic community get get tied into certain ways of thinking, and then I understand uh, that it's difficult to change those ways of thinking because you're going to lose a lot of your status within your profession and your friends and a whole bunch of things are, are going to change. But what I say they should have anticipated is when I was in graduate school, I had a, a whole course in kind of market organization, and, and we studied in that course what was necessary for competitive markets, and we had something, you know, called, uh, like most people think of it as antitrust policy, but it's maintaining a competitive market, um, a market system, a system that will really do what Adam Smith said in terms of the invisible hand working to, you know, allocate scarce resources to meet the needs of at least people as, as consumers. And there was kind of three characteristics. One was structure, which says you have to have a large number of small firms. Um, in a purely competitive markets, so many firms or firms small enough so that no one individual, the action of no one individual has a significant impact on overall supplies or prices. And the second is conduct. Um, if you have small producers, you can't allow them to, conclu- to collude so that they act as one big producer. So that's conduct. And then the third was performance, and that was kind of the, the consequence of structure and conduct. And the idea was that if you had a competitive uh, structure and conduct, then you'd have larger quantities of product at lower prices. And so that was the, the basic idea. But when we got into the, the 1980s and the economy was slowing down, we had some uh, economic problems, as I talked about, with inflation. And then they began to say, okay, we've got to rethink some of these things. And so basically they went to performance. And they said, okay, if we've got increasing output and we've got lower prices, and the other thing was the innovation if we're getting a variety of new products coming in, then we have performance, and then we just simply won't worry about structure or conduct to any great extent. As long as as long as we're getting what I call it, as long as we're getting a lot of cheap stuff, uh, we're not going to worry about whether we're getting the right stuff. Because in order to get the right stuff, in order to make sure that what consumers need, they were getting at the at the lowest possible economic cost then you would have had to have a competitive market structure, large number of small farms, and you'd have to have absence of collusion. Today, we, we don't have 
a large number of small farms. We have very few large farms. What sociologists and others have concluded is when you get down to the point where you've got four or five large firms that control over half of the overall market, you don't have to have out-and-out collusion because they all know what each other's doing, and they go about uh, kind of setting prices and colluding without actually talking to each other, without having any evidence of collusion. And that's what we've gone toward, and that's the natural tendency of a capitalist economy to move in that direction, and therefore it's a responsibility of the government which is what I learned in graduate school and other economists did too, the responsibility of the government is to not allow that to happen rather than to sanction it and even encourage it to happen. For example, if you if you look in agriculture, and there's been studies done, that in, in various sectors of the economy, you would find such things as rather than needing, like some, let's say, 500 sows, uh, in a hog operation, if you had like 50 to 100 sows in that operation, and that would be, you know, take 10 pigs times that, you would have achieved all these economies of scale that I was talking about with industrialization. Be- beyond that, it's mainly a matter of accommodating this industrial uh, slaughter and distribution system is where you get kind of the economic power. And it's the same way with, with firm after firm. I've got a friend that's uh, in charge of the or for many years was in charge, and he still has the information on the Dairy Profitability Center at the University of Wisconsin. And he says basically the economies of scale in a dairy operation are are exhausted at 100 to 150 cows in a dairy operation. Beyond that, it's a matter of the operations getting bigger to accommodate the industrial system of processing and distribution. So the, the size that we have today is is not necessary and it's not there because of economic efficiency. It's basically there because of the market power, the power to influence market prices, to charge higher prices than would be possible if it's purely competitive, and to pay, in the case of agriculture, pay producers less than you would be paying them, and to take a larger return for your shareholders than you'd have in a competitive market. So that's what we have. And then they use that market power that comes from the large-sized corporations to turn that into political power, which which basically destroys the ability of, of people then to influence the political system in ways that would regulate those corporations so that they would be, in fact, competitive. So we've just allowed capitalism to get out of hand in terms of concentration of markets, which give them market power that's not characteristic of competitive market economies and the political power which prevents the government from enforcing the regulations that would be necessary to return us to a competitive capitalistic model. That's really interesting. Um, in, in 2014, you were asked uh, by the United Nations to produce a report about family farms in the U.S. And one of the central th- Uh, points that you made in that report is that family farms are multifunctional. That is, they, uh, you know, they need to be uh, financially sound and, you know, profitable enough to sustain themselves, but that that profitability has to sit alongside other values and other things that those farms are fulfilling, including being stewards of the land, uh, being members of a community, uh, sustaining the health and well-being of the family itself and so on. And that just really, it's really struck me because my own research and focus in my work is around independent business and, and particularly, you know, Main Street retailers. 
and this is it's a it's a very similar story um you know they have to you know you know they have to operate profitable businesses and and be financially viable and so on but when you look at their decision making and when you look at their role in the community um they're making decisions that are governed by a mix of values and they're serving a wide array of functions besides you know in addition to just distributing goods uh they're performing all these other functions economic social and otherwise in the community and so when you're comparing them to say Walmart what we haven't been taking into account is all these other things uh, and all these other ways in which they your research seems to to say that that is true of of family farms as well and i, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about what some of those functions are and how you see that working it goes back to my uh, kind of interest in why I've embraced the concept of agricultural sustainability because the, the agricultural sustainability is totally consistent with this idea of multifunctionality. And I've argued uh, multifunctionality is absolutely essential for sustainability, whether we talk in agriculture or whether we talk in the general economy or whether we talk about sustainable communities or whatever. And that, that multifunctionality that you described, and it's interesting, I kind of suppose that that was probably true in, in small businesses, but that's not been my experience. But it, it kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the very popular balanced farming program at the University of Missouri in the 30s and 40s. And that was a period of time, and, and even into the 50s, that was a period of time when traditional family farm values were very strong. And that balanced approach was saying, okay, on on the one hand, you know what we what we tend to talk about first is kind of making a living. Uh, but the balanced farming program was more about at that time the quality of life in a farm. The 30s and 40s uh, quality of life. Many farms didn't have electricity. They didn't have running water. I, we we didn't have electricity on the farm that I grew up on until about the time I started high school. And we got running water when we got a grade-A dairy farm, but we didn't have indoor plumbing in my house until I came home as a junior from college and helped my brothers and my dad put in a bathroom over Christmas vacation. But the focus of the balanced farming was we need to improve the, the, the social quality of life, you know, the, the various things that, that go with uh, desirable conveniences. And then the other thing they couple that with is taking care of the land, and it was just stewardship. There's this long-term ethic in agriculture that that real farmers have a responsibility to leave the land for the next generation as productive as they found it and that's in this idea of sustainability it's stewardship of the land and there's also kind of responsibility for the larger community and i've said on a family farm uh the family and and the farm are inseparable the, the farm and the way it functions and the way it's operated is a reflection of the values of the family within the community. And and so, you know, they're thinking not only about what we're doing on the farm and how we're going to make money, but what are people going to think about this? What's is Are they going to think that we're fulfilling our responsibilities as, as members of this community? And you describe, you know, the, the small family businesses or the small independently owned businesses much the same, and I think there's a lot of similarity there. I think as an economist, one of the most important things we need to realize is when we talk about the economics, economics is, is instrumental in that economics is a means of achieving something else. It was never meant to be the end that we pursued the economics with. It was, it's a means of something else. If you look at money, money is a claim to something. If you don't know what you want to claim with that money, you don't know how much it's worth or whatever. 
so I think in the in the multifunctional farm, what you do is you look at at the economic viability of the farm as the means by which you pursue whatever purpose you want for that business or whatever you feel in terms of kind of your social and ethical responsibility. What is it that makes your life good? What makes it worthwhile? What makes your gives your life meaning? And those are those social and ethical and ecological uh, stewardship, all of those things. And the economic piece of it is absolutely essential, but it's a means of allowing you to do the other things. And so when we talk about the multifunctionality, you've got to look at, okay, what's the natural resource base that supports this farm or supports this business? Where are we getting from? And then the human resources. Where are the people involved in the operation? And so we've got to maintain the productivity of the natural resources, the land, the water, the air, or the for the business, whatever sources and materials that they have. And we have to take care of our employees. We have to make sure that it's uh, good for the family, it's good for the community, if we want to sustain this business in the community, if we want to sustain the farm in the community. And then if we if we do those things, then those things are, are where we create the economic viability that allows us to continue to do that. And in the absence of the of the dominant sort of corporate influence, then that economic system could work function very well. It never functioned perfectly, but functions very well. The, the fundamental difference of what we have now is uh, we go to a corporately controlled economy. But when you go to a large publicly traded corporation, you're basically in the global markets. And the people may be good people that are managing these operations. They may have strong social and ethical values, and the shareholders may have strong ethical and social values. But the only values they have in common is the desire to increase the economic value of that stock. So when you're managing the corporation, the corporation itself is purely an economic entity. It's a it's a monofunctional operation. By by its very definition, the only thing you can do a for-profit corporation is to do whatever is necessary for it to maximize profits or returns to its to its shareholders, and that's basically what it does. That's the reason it tries to influence the political system. That's the reason it tries to gain uh, control of the markets, to gain monopoly power in the markets. It's simply doing what corporations are designed to do. And what we've forgotten is that, you know, a corporation, a large publicly held corporation, has no social or ethical values, but we have to impose those through our public policies. And when I was talking about antitrust policy, that's basically the, the justification. That's kind of the, the reason that we that we have government in control of uh, capitalist economies. And when government loses control, then it loses the ability to impose the, the social and ethical values of the of the society in which that which that uh, company or that corporation functions. And then the corporation continues then to exploit and extract, exploit from the natural resources, exploit the people, extract the resources, and so on. And then I think ultimately we've got to get back to a situation where we reflect those social and ethical values as well as our economic necessities and the decisions that we make and the policies that we make and the way we farm and the way we run our businesses. What do you think our prospects for doing that are? I, I, there is a, you know, a, there has been a growing local food movement that's trying to reconnect with farmers, uh, consumers that are interested in eat, eating local, uh, community-supported agriculture. There, there seems to be more awareness, at, at least in some places, around these issues. I know that there's 
you know, farmers are, are certainly been trying to organize uh, to to change some of the policies and the the ways in which you know antitrust and uh, the farm bill and other things uh, so work against that model of agriculture. Um, but when you look back at at where we've come over the last ten years, do you feel like we've made any progress? Do you have hope? What do you think needs to happen next in order to really overcome this? I always have people ask me, well, am I am I optimistic about the, bringing about the changes? And I, my standard answer is, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. And that simply means that I know that it's possible that we can do these things. I'm confident that it's possible we can make the changes, but I'm not underestimating you know, the difficulty. I don't underestimate the economic and political power of the corporations, but I think I think you can change. I think we have made progress because there's greater public uh, public awareness now. There's much greater public awareness of the issues I'm talking about today than there was 25 years ago or 27, 8 years ago when I came to the, back to the University of Missouri. You know, most people had never heard the word sustainable at that time. And I had Actually, I was thinking back, I didn't even, I don't think I'd ever heard the word environment, environmental, until, you know, Silent Spring, uh, uh, Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. So there's a person by the name of Margaret Wheatley, as kind of a leading uh, writer, has been over the years on organizational change and different ways of thinking, holistic thinking and things of this nature. But she went away on a, a retreat uh, of some time, and she came back and made a talk at the University of Wisconsin that I picked up on the Internet that I've used several times, and I think it's very insightful. And she came back, she said she had three basic observations. The, the, the first was there's a feeling of, of impotence and despair within society today, and I think that's particularly true in, in rural areas where they're being dominated by the large confinement animal feeding operations, industrial agriculture, and, you know, we see rural areas in economic and social decline and decay. And I think it's true across society. There's there's a, this feeling that something fundamentally is wrong. Now, I think that's the first thing that has to happen before you bring about real change. People have to come to the realization, look, something isn't working here. And we certainly don't have agreement about what we ought to do about it. But but when you have agreement that there's something wrong, you're at least one step closer to doing something about it. The second observation that I hadn't thought about, at least not as clearly until I read what she said, she says, information doesn't change minds anymore. And I've written some about this, too. The, the issues that we're dealing with now are so complex that you can look at them from various different directions and come to different conclusions. For example, economists, you know, kind of, Neoclassical economist in the traditional vein of that would look at the same things I'm looking at and talking about here, and they'd come to a different conclusion. So information is not changing minds, you know, and we talk about alternative facts and things of this nature. People don't know what to believe. But the third part that I think is, is most hopeful, she said she had come to the conclusion that the only way you bring about change is when people within communities take charge of their own destiny. That, that change within the community is the way that you bring about change within the larger society and change in the global economy or a community as a whole. And I and I I really believe that's that's where we are. And if you look around, you you're aware of a lot of different organizations, and I am too, that are all working in the same kind of basic direction. Uh, 
you know, we may have different ideas of what we ought to do and things of that nature, but but we all realize there's something fundamentally wrong, and, and I would argue they all kind of come under this conceptual umbrella of sustainability. How do we meet the needs of everyone here today? Not everyone have everything that they want, but how do we meet the basic food needs of people so that every child in this country and every child in the world has enough good basic food to eat so that they can have healthy development of their minds and body and grow up to be productive, happy people. How how do we do that? But how do we do it in a way that doesn't diminish opportunities of those of future generations to meet their needs as well so that they and their children will have enough to eat and will have enough clothes and housing and that sort of thing? And I think there's a realization that what we have now isn't meeting the needs of many, if not most, of the people of the world today, and we certainly aren't leaving equal or better opportunities for the future. The next step in that is for people within all of these different communities. And when I talk about communities, I'm talking about communities of place, which are important, but communities of interest, people that are like-minded and see a particular particular dimension of the issue I'm talking about, like the Organization to Competitive Markets, where we met, and and these are people within communities that have come together with other people within those communities, and they connect with each other, and then they bring the connections with all these different organizations that they're a part of, and we're developing this network of communities that are just all across the country and around the world. I think that's where the change is going to emerge from. We change at the at the local level, and then we begin to have impacts at the local level. Then we can change at the state and regional and national and ultimately the international level. But it all begins at when people take charge of their own destiny within their own communities. Well, you can imagine as the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we very much uh, share that philosophy and that belief. And so... Um, This has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking some time out today to talk with us. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for calling me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. And once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Nick Stumo-Langer. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacy Mitchell. I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. 